The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. On this episode, we'll explore how a simple shift in thinking can change everything you believe about your own happiness. We'll look at how a different perspective can enable us to live happily when life isn't perfect. And wherever you are in life, I think you'll benefit from hearing the wisdom of our guest. Joining us is New York Times bestselling author, Cy Wakeman, whose new book is called Life's Messy, Live Happy. Things don't have to be perfect for you to be content. So I thank you so much for joining us. We absolutely love the book. Oh, I'm so glad. And thank you for the opportunity. Now, you are a leadership consultant and a drama researcher. Tell us more about your work. I started life as a counselor. And as I became a leader, what I noticed was there was an enormous amount of waste in the workplace and that that waste wasn't kind of downtime in a process. It was emotional waste or drama. And we were looking for all kinds of ways that we could improve the experience of our patients and our work. And I got really focused on what if we could diffuse or eliminate the drama in our lives, that part that was just pure waste that we added to already difficult situations, what would that save us? And I was able through my research to quantify that the average person spends two and a half hours a day, 816 hours a year in drama, doing work harder or with more mystery than necessary. So I thought, what freedom to bring the world is to help people understand how to move through the world differently so that they had less drama and less stress and less misery. It's been a fun ride um, in terms of leadership development. It's really easy to be happy and have a good outlook when things are going well. And I was thinking about how you had a lot of people who had businesses that were doing really well, and then the pandemic hit. And obviously, those external forces made it so that they felt like they weren't happy, like everything was working against them. So how can people who are facing tough times post the pandemic realize that this is an opportunity for them to have a new start and find kind of a different, maybe more pure sense of happiness? I think the pandemic for all of us has revealed much to us if if we're looking. And I don't want to bypass that depending on where one started in their state of privilege, um, we all had different levels of resources and different experiences. But I do know wherever you're at in your life, that one wonderful invitation I would make is to really look at the pandemic and all of what's happened in the last two years and ask yourself, what does this pandemic revealed to me about me? What's it revealed to me about my relationship with solitude and my relationship with uncertainty and um, perhaps my boundaries um, if I'm home with lots of kids or my parenting skills? Like 
I think using this time out from the universe to get self-reflective is so important. Um, I know for my team, they went into hustle gear. They're like, when the pandemic hit, they're like, Sai, we got this. We'll still make goals. We're going to pivot. They were using all of the jargon. And I think I shocked them or disarmed them when I said, you know what? I know I'm the one that taught you that. But what it seems to me is it's a bit tone deaf right now to keep hustling in the face of devastation for many. And so instead, I invited them to a different conversation. What is enough? And what if that was our only goal was just to do enough, be enough, you know, make enough to cover so that people were taken care of during this time. And that really relaxed everybody back into being human and caring for one another, being creative, finding balance in their life. And I think it's an important question um, in the pandemic to really mine it for your experience so that you emerge evolved, not traumatized. We're going to emerge from this um, hopefully, uh, but the, the difference is, are you going to emerge evolved or traumatized? Um, I was timed out in Mexico um, for three months on my own, going through some really difficult times. And my friend said to me, Sai, you can go through this time that you're on lockdown in Mexico as a monk or as a prisoner, your choice. And uh, I'm so grateful I decided to use it as a wonderful retreat. You were talking about how we spend an average of two and a half hours a day involved in drama. What kind of drama are you talking about? How does this drama show up in our lives and how is it unhealthy? First, probably a third of it comes from seeing the world through the lens of ego and its critique and judgment and um, venting and complaining and you know, arguing with reality, wishing the world were different rather than look accepting the world as it is and moving from there to make it different. So a lot of it is ego and just the constant grinding we do in our minds, the anxiety and ruminating thinking. Part of it comes from um, outsourcing our emotional well-being or outsourcing our own um, accountability. So some of it comes from lack of accountability and blaming others. A lot of it comes from resisting change. We um, we fight what's coming our way that's new, and we hold on to what's trying to leave us that no longer serves us. And so we spend just an enormous amount of energy um, also doing things like withholding our buy-in instead of saying joyfully, yes, um, I'm in. Now let's talk about how and what my boundaries are around that. We tend to... Um, outsource and say, well, I'll be in if you guarantee me this. We make a lot of conditions around what we'll give. And um, we just really try and control reality a lot more than we think. And those are the main sources of drama. I think a lot of drama in our lives comes from gossip or negative talk about people. And you really got me thinking about how easy it is to do that because it almost makes a connection with somebody that, you know, we don't know that person that well, but if they say something bad about somebody, whether it's a celebrity or somebody that we know, it's like, oh, okay, we can latch onto that. It's super easy to do that. And then you've started this drama cycle that you really wouldn't have had otherwise. How did using neutral language help you maintain a more positive mindset that really impacted and helped other aspects of your life? 
Yeah. And it really invites people to do the same, right? So our egos love to bond with each other, personalities bond. And we usually bond um, on really shaky ground at the expense of another. And it's not really a healthy bond. And so what I try and teach people to do instead of like treating themselves as a self you know, help project or, you know, trying to do rash things like, you know, limit all of their relationships, stuff we can't stick with. Little tiny micro boundaries, I call them. And one of the ways you set micro boundaries is neutral language. So I started it at work when people come in, they say, we just got three patients dumped on us. I would not meet that energy with like energy. I'd meet it with neutrality. I would say dumped on us. You mean we have three new admissions? How can we admit patients so that they have a wonderful experience here? And it's really managing the energy of the conversation that people will rise up to away from why we can't to how we could. And I use that a lot when people come to me, you know, with drama. Um, and not only neutralize the language, it's not a corrective or a critique of them or a sarcasm in any way. It's an invitation to use our energy not to cut people down, but to think about how we could help. Um, and so if somebody comes up to me, you know, or I'll give you a real example. My, I had a sister call me and she was concerned about a house my brother was buying that maybe they could not afford. And she started the conversation with, have you heard about Michael? And he's buying a house he can't afford. And instead of like, oh, I know. And she really wanted to dish on my other brother. Um, and she's a sweet person. Instead of me saying, I know, you know. Mike's wife has champagne taste on the beer budget. Instead of going there, I just said, oh, my gosh, if, if what's your fear around that? And she was like, well, he's going to be destitute in retirement. And I'm like, OK, well, uh, what should we be doing to help? Let's brainstorm. Like, I have extra rooms in my house. He could live with me or I have extra money. I could send him some. And it was a humorous thing. And she immediately kind of backed off. And um, I said, what do you think we should do? And she's like, well, I'm not getting involved in that hot mess. And I said, awesome. What do you want to do for 4th of July? And I think that we don't have to critique others. We don't have to judge others. We don't have to rule them all of our life. With neutral language, we can invite them into a different conversation. So what I would tell listeners is if you're involved in an exhausting conversation, one that's bringing you no joy, just end it and start a new conversation. And you get to do that every day, hundreds of times a day. You say that joy and misery are the two choices we have when we go through each day. And at each experience, we need to make the choice. So explain more about that. A lot of folks, when they're externally identified, think this is like positive thinking or spiritual bypassing or... What I mean by joy or misery are choices if you're meeting your own thinking. So if you stop believing everything you think and you meet it with what we call inquiry, is that true? What could I be doing to help? If I were my highest self, what would that be right now? If we, most of our reality is not that painful. Our stories about reality are so much harsher than the actual reality. And we see this all the time. You know, my ex-husband asked me for an extra couple of days with my kids on a snowboard trip. The only thing that just happened is he said, hey, can I have the kids a couple of days longer? That's it. I add the story that he's trying to be Disneyland dad and buy my kids off and violate the custody agreement. And but all that really happened is he asked a question and I can say, sure. 
I would love for them to have more time with you. Or I could say, no, we have plans joyfully. I can skip the misery part about the story I attach to that question of his motive and my assumptions and how this will play out in the future. And the the decision when I talk about joy or misery is even if I say, no, that won't work. We have a holiday celebration at, you know, my parents' house, even that I can still do joyfully and say, and I appreciate you asking. I love that you take an interest in our kids And that's the choice we have, but the default for most people is suffering, is misery. Like, I know he's up to something. And it's like, well, is that true? And so I think that's the part where I'm not asking people to be fake or joyful. I just believe that joy and happiness is our natural state much of the time, contentment, I'm not talking about the feeling that comes and goes because I want you to feel your feelings, but contentment is pretty much our natural state until we start believing our stories that we make up. But what about times that are that bad, like death? That You talk about your friend Kathy and how she actually died while you were writing the book. Yes. And I think um, the joy or misery is about suffering or not suffering. Um, grieving is a, a feeling. And I think it's very um, important that people get to um, to understand the difference. Because when I talk about joy or misery, most of the misery we feel in our lives is self-imposed. There are other feelings that are pretty visceral. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the book is if you want to get good at life, you need to get really um, competent at heartbreak and um, grieving and feeling your feelings and not intellectualizing your feelings into grievances, not being kind of externally focused. And so, yeah, I lost my sweet Kathy. Um, and I've had the front row seat um, in a lot of people's um, lives when they're in that last development stage of um, um, passing from this reality. And um, it was beautiful and joyful and sad and tragic and um, and, and all of it. But I think the word and is really important when we are um, grieving. It, a lot of us, I think, um, feel like if we are ever happy after we lose somebody, we're not paying proper homage to them. Or um, and, and there's so many feelings that can be true at the same time. I was thrilled about how beautiful her death was. And I was so sad for, you know, having to figure out how to live life in a world without her. Tell us more about the three questions you suggest people to ask themselves when they're faced with an obstacle, because I think that's a real key point in your book. These three questions that really can help us approach a difficult time. I call them the three questions that will change your life. And I even um, did a TEDx talk that people can um, query about that. Um, but if, if you want to boil down kind of a path to freedom or a path to more joy, less misery in your life, and again, that is about the suffering, not about what you're actually feeling, um, it's your state of contentment. The first question, whenever you're feeling stressed, is um, what do I know for sure? Because most often, if we're looking through the world in the lens of ego, we take a fact Like someone moved into my lane of traffic, allowing me less room than I prefer. So far, that's not dangerous or a threat. Until I had the story, they're trying to kill me. They don't care about other drivers. They think they're all that in the bag of chips. Now I'm suffering. But if I ask myself, what do I know for sure? Somebody moved into my lane and I would like more room. 
I make a good decision, I slow down. If I truly believe my thinking, they're trying to kill me. I do irrational things. Like I'm like, oh no, this is unsafe. So I'll speed up and block him out. Like it breaks your ego's grip on the situation. And you see reality more clearly when you ask yourself, what do I know for sure? It, it edits my story. I'm not adding fact. I'm not adding fiction to the situation. I just stay neutral. And that helps me open up then to what can I do next that would help? And that I think is our natural state of when we feel pretty good about ourselves is when we're actually, you know, serving our purpose and helping people. And then the final question is what would great look like if I were great, not if they were great, if I were my best self, what would that look like? And that helps me live authentically without blaming my circumstances. I can avoid outsourcing my behavior and my well-being. It's no longer predetermined by my um, circumstances. And so going back to, you know, what do I know for sure when my ex asked for a few more days with the kids, all I knew was he had called me to ask if he could keep the kids longer. And when I asked myself, what can I do to help? Um, I had nothing else planned. And so what was helpful was to say, you know, sure. And I was even willing to change the plane reservations. What would great look like, um, you know, takes me a step further. It's making sure when I interact with my kids that um, I'm asking them in a positive way about, you know, the fun times they just had with their dad. And that gets me out of my own selfishness, my own, you know, fear that they had more fun with their dad than me and all of that kind of crazy thinking. Those questions, if you work them like meditation, not just intellectually, they will work on your heart and mind and soften your heart and soften and open your minds. If we find ourselves thinking in circles, like so many of us do, why should we avoid the words, oh, and should, even though they're, they're typically my (laughs) go-to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I talk a lot in the book about reflection, self-reflection and asking better questions. I think that we um, start with faulty questions, which then traps us into kind of unsolvable things, you know, things become unable to be figured out. So for instance, a lot of us, when we're trying to um, think our way through our own lives and our own decisions, we come up with a question. And a lot of the questions are, should I stay or should I go? For instance, like a job or a relationship, should I stay or should I go? And there's so many problems with this question. One, because it has or in there, you only have two options. Both are pretty extreme. Like, should I stay and not be happy or should I go and like, leave an entire chapter of my life behind. I'm like, wow, those two big choices might ensure that you don't make any choice. Should, a lot of times we ask what I should do and that calls in our conditioning. Like what would a good girl do? What would somebody who follows the rules or, um, you know, what would other people think? What would they advise me to do? It's also a bad question because it's so conditional. If we have a good weekend, I'm I'm definitely staying. If we have a bad weekend, I'm going. And it keeps me from not participating fully in any experience. And so when people are in a dilemma of their lives, and I often ask them, you know, so what's your question? And I want to hear the main question. And then instead of like helping them find answers, the first thing I do is help them ask better questions. Because the if the question is... Um, 
a better question. The answers you already have. It's just, it, that's not the key that's going to open the door. And so a better question is forget about your current situation. Are you fulfilled? And let's say somebody wants to leave their job in healthcare right now. It's like, are you fulfilled? And their answer is like, no, this is not what I signed up for. Another great question that you need to sit with for a while, what's your soul craving? Get it down to a word or two. What's it craving? And then once you know what your soul's craving, then be an adult and a grown-up and go ask your boss if you can get a little more of that or ask your partner, you know, here's what's my soul's craving. And I'm wondering if we can work um, to curate our lives differently so that I can get some more of that. But there's a space between finding out what you crave and making the direct ask. And that's another question. What keeps you from just asking the people in your life for what you need? And that's where your work is. For me, it came up. It's like, well, um, I, I don't want people to think I'm a quitter. And so I had to ask myself, am I willing for people to be wrong about me to live the life I want to live? And you start to hear like what you, some of your limiting beliefs are. And it's like, well, you know, if it's a relationship, it's like, I made a commitment. I have integrity. Well, what if divorce sometimes is an act of integrity? What if it's taking a stand for yourself? I don't know what the right questions are, but I know that if you're starting a question with or or should in it, um, they're not the right questions. And then when you can fully connect in with what's my soul craving and you ask people for that, not that they can deliver it to you, but ask them for the conditions that, that um, could help create that. You're asking from such a clean, clean level without blame. And then the next piece of work you have to do is um, believe the answer. And most of us get to the soul question. We make the ask and we don't like the answer we get because we want to avoid the grieving. And it's like you have your answer. If that's what your soul craves and you've asked the people, your boss or your partner, and their answer is, I don't think so. Then you have beautiful information to use that to go get that need met. But where we stop right there is we just stop in the anger that the person in front of us won't meet that need. And it's like, grieve that and then curate the life that, that you want. If that's truly your soul's craving. You urge people to cultivate the ability to accept that many things can be true at the same time. Tell us more about that. Oh my gosh, this will change your life and it will change your relationships. So there's something we go into as human beings called cognitive dissonance. Um, and when we see, when we believe something and we get something that hints another fact that hints that I might not have a clear understanding or it might be com not be completely true, we want to know which is true. And the way we settle cognitive dissonance is we ignore kind of accuracy in favor of certainty so that we can feel secure. So in the early days, if you're a prehistoric person and you met somebody on the side of the road you're trying to decide whether to spend a thousand calories to walk a mile to where there might be water. And you ask them, is there water a mile away? A helpful answer is yes or no, but that's not the true answer. The true answer might be there's both water and not water ahead. There are rocks, which aren't water, and there's water. 
that for most of us is like just too much. And so we throttle down to just this area of polarity, like are, what side are you on? I'm like, well, what if there's only one side and it's the human race or people want to avoid complexity, but you then avoid the juicy energy of life when we toggle down. So I love the word and it opens my heart and mind. So like, let's say I get into someone's car who's decided to pick me up to um, drive together to work and it's very messy. And I get in, I'm like, oh my God, this guy's life is a mess. He is messy. If I don't go any further, I have just shut down any potential connection if I go, he's messy and he volunteers a lot and he doesn't have a lot of time and he may not have the same value as I do about clean cars. And and now I'm back in relationship with him. And this isn't trying to not see something. This is just trying to open your heart and your mind up that, you know, how has the last month been for you? Horrible and, well, beautiful and tragic and um you know, filled with gratitude. And like you rejoin the human race with and because you make room for all of your parts and you make room for all the parts of other people and people don't get disqualified or canceled quite so quickly. But at the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what did nobody tell you about what it took to be happy that you wish you'd known during the worst times in your life because it would have allowed you to be happier sooner and you'd like to pass on to our listeners. Oh my gosh. Stop believing everything you think. I had no idea and forget often that I am the observer of my thinking. I am not the thinker. I am the the beautiful connection that observes the thinking. And had I known that, I would realize that so many of my thoughts are old news of past trauma that don't apply to the situation. And when I believe them wholeheartedly and act out of them, I'm just not free. And so I wish somebody had told me, question everything you think. That's the key to be not only happy, but free. How can people connect with you on social media and the internet and find out more about your book and the work? So on social media, I'm at Cy Wakeman, C-Y-W-A-K-E-M-A-N. Because of the algorithms might mean we don't show up in your feed with some of our incredible material. And I'm that on TikTok and Instagram and um, YouTube and all of those places. You can sign up for our newsletter, Reality Based Leadership. Um, dot com. There's a newsletter sign up and we send you wonderful content every couple of weeks, complete with video. And uh, we talk about both work and home. So we'd love to have people join us. Well, Sai, it's been an absolute joy talking with you. This is just such important you know, work that you're doing and really trying to help people live a happier life. And we thank you for that. Thank you for having me on. Our thanks to Cy Wakeman, whose new book is called Life's Messy, Live Happy. Things don't have to be perfect for you to be content. And again, her website is realitybasedleadership.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 